0: The Healthcare Quality Cast is powered by the Quality Coaching Company. If you'd like to work with us to earn your Lean Six Sigma for healthcare certification or partner with our innovative corporate training and coaching programs to successfully scale your continuous improvement initiatives, then click the link below to learn more and apply. Hey, quality people, welcome to the Healthcare Quality Cast. I'm your host, Jarvis Gray, and in this podcast, we spotlight today's most exciting and inspiring industry leaders. We dive deep into the career journeys of these leaders that work daily to improve quality, safety, and service outcomes for their patients, their family members, and their communities at large. Our mission is to provide motivation and direction to our listeners, encouraging you all to continue your efforts in improving the overall quality of healthcare. Now, let's meet today's quality guests. All right. Thank you for joining in on another episode of the Healthcare Quality Cast. And today I'm here with my guest, Andrew Stein. Andrew, are you ready to share with some quality people? Absolutely. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. Thanks for, uh, thanks for returning and we'll joke and, you know, fill the, uh, fill the audience in on that a little later. But um, Andrew, man, I, I would love to get you started today with us, um, you know, with some positive affirmations to really just kind of get our momentum going here. So I love if you could share a favorite leadership quote or a leadership mindset, but tell us why it appeals to you and how do you apply it on a daily basis? Sure thing. Again, thanks for having me, Jarvis.
1: Uh, so my favorite definition of leadership is a guiding hand that beckons the way, a guiding hand that beckons the way. And I love the image of a leader as a guide, you know, leading, but guiding. Um, and so I think this image resonates because I've got this background in professional facilitation. So workshops, off sites, you know, imagine a room of 30 executives all trying to get on the same page. And I'm the guy at the front of the room. As the master facilitator, it's my job to guide the group to get to breakthrough and to bring them, to guide them through the experiences that they need. Uh, so facilitation is in my DNA. It's, and, and facilitation, I'd say, is more than having a marker in your hand and writing on a flip chart. Designing a session that works, it's leadership, it's organizational psychology, change management, adult learning theory. Uh, so even now in my current job with one unit, I see my role partly as a facilitator helping people and organizations get to where they need to go by facilitating the journey by guiding. Um, and so facilitation mean, kind of means three things. There's, you know, a good facilitator, you can diagnose where the group is right now. Number two, where they need to be. And then number three, how do they get from A to B? What do the steps look like? Um, oftentimes I see with hospital leaders, they'll set a destination, but they don't always work backward from the destination. And the, the key question I guess to be asking is, what would need to be true? What would need to be true to reach this destination? Um, so for us quality leaders, I think something we can do, uh, you know, I think what some of the great quality leaders do is about guiding frontline staff to higher levels of performance, you know, higher levels of quality, of safety. Uh, and so that guiding role uh, is what I think QI leaders can do. Um, and I think to do that, you've got to have that really clear point of view about where the hospital needs to go or where the unit needs to go, and then working backwards to guide everyone towards it, what would need to be true. Um, so I think what I ask myself as a facilitator, as, as a one-unit person, what a QI project manager could ask, how can I create the conditions so that when we're not on the unit, when we're not on the ward or we're not in the hospital, that this improved performance can continue without us? Um, you know, I think some people see QI professionals as problem solvers. Uh, and they stop there, uh, you know, I think you just got to keep going. You got to make a solution facilitation this really explicit part of the job description, uh, that your job is to guide it all the way through. So the best quality leaders, at least in my mind, or at least what I aspire to be, uh, we are guides, we are facilitators, and we see ourselves in that light. I don't know about you, do you, do you feel like you're, you're, you guide you know, the, the people you work with? Are you facilitating
0: them along? Well, so I, I was going to say, honestly, Andrew, I, I love that entire just opener um, that you know everything you just shared there was literally something quotable I'll probably pull to highlight this episode so I you know I hope the rest of the episode is going to be high packed just from your opener um, like that was because I loved everything you said I think that's exactly what we do as quality people the the pre-show conversation we were just having around the role of the quality team the quality department um, we are guides and facilitators unfortunately not all teams that we work with leverage us like that you know they they treat us like they're you know we're only good for analyzing their data or bits and pieces of our expertise but ultimately in the best case scenario that's exactly what we are we're their consultants their guides their coaches so that they can produce the quality since they're the ones touching the patients or the customers on a routine basis so um, personally I love it I, I can resonate tremendously with what you said would you, would you say, Jarvis, that um,
1: people may under-optimize or sub-optimize what they get out of someone like you because they're not necessarily asking you to... to they're asking you just to study the data, right? They're asking you to kind of just lead a, a Six Sigma analysis as opposed to sort of thinking through what would have to be true to actually get from here to there.
0: Yeah, and again, I, I would venture to say that many of our quality folks that that plug in with this podcast will think the same. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had the opportunity to work for many different leaders. Um, uh, Andrew, I almost called you Jason, think about thinking about your partner in crime over there. Um, but you know, I've had the chance to work for many different leaders who were nurses, who were um, administrative folks, who were physicians, and I've always kind of been the best part of their strength versus being leveraged as a person who could actually bring together the complete picture for operational quality improvement. So um, it's going to be interesting to see see where we go with much of the rest of this conversation, because, um, you know, a lot of what you're saying, I think, kind of touches on exactly why I created a podcast like this, so we can see different pictures and bring different um, perspectives about quality improvement. But um, unfortunately, I've had just the bits and pieces. I've only had maybe one or two good supervisors who've Asked me to bring everything to the table, and we did some really cool stuff. That's uh, yeah. Those those experiences are special. I'm I'm glad that you've oh, absolutely. All right. So um, let let me keep you going forward, Andrew. Because again, starting off with such a powerful and dynamic mindset. Um, hopefully, the the listeners are already really engaged in where we're going to go next. But um, Andrew, I love if you could quickly um, describe you, share with us, you know, who you are, what you do, your role, your background and absolutely what led you into this career path.
1: Yeah, sure, so right now today, I'm president of hospital programs at One Unit. that's numeral one, U-N-I-T, uh, small healthcare startup based here in Atlanta. Background is I graduated from Brown University with an engineering degree, I got my MBA from Emory Business School here in Atlanta. Uh, and my background career-wise is just management consulting, um, you know, 15 years of organizational transformation. So I've had the privilege of helping probably more than 100 organizations, with uh, you know, people, process technology, they're trying to grow, they're trying to innovate, solving complex problems of one kind or another. Most recently, I was at Deloitte Consulting. Um, as a former management consultant, or maybe a recovery management consultant, I love working in and with hospitals because there is no more complex organization than a hospital. Right? People have observed this before. Uh, hospitals, it's like the world series of organizational transformation. Like you're, you're not even in the major leagues, you're in the world series. And so if you can solve something across multiple hospitals, big ones, small ones, urban rural, for-profit, not-for-profit, um, I feel like you've done the hardest thing there is to do in management consulting or, or in, the, in the discipline of organizational change. And then you know, zoom into that, uh, maybe the hardest part of the hospital, maybe is changing what the interdisciplinary care team does at the bedside because now you're telling doctors and nurses what to do differently. And most people want to, don't wanna do that. Well, anyway, obviously the need is there for, for, for organizational transformation hospitals. You know, there's that 2016 study that medical errors are the third, learning, third leading cause of death. I'm not sure about the methodology of that particular study. I, I've heard that, that those numbers might be inflated, but we can all agree that uh, medical errors are, are, are too common. Um, and, you know, hospital units are completely just unengineered you know, they're just probably the least engineered workplace in the world. Uh, you know, if you, and you sp- all you have to do is spend time as a patient or a visitor or observer. And what you see is often fragmented decision-making, chaotic processes, inefficiency. Um, so, uh, you know, I joined one unit uh, several years ago because I saw the amazing results in what we're doing, uh, the sense that this is how care needs to be. And we weren't getting the word out. Um, not enough, not enough people knew that hospital teamwork was a solved problem. And so that's been our mission to kind of share that, uh, just, you know, my chance, I feel like to make a dent in the universe. We'd like to help our hospital partners, uh, save time, improve the experience of giving and receiving care in their wards. Uh, and we're on a social mission to just kind of reinvent the standard of care. I think if, if, if we're successful, then what will happen is that, uh, the standard of care on acute care medical wards, uh, you know, in 10 years, people look back and say, yeah, that's the thing that one unit pioneered, that's what we do now.
0: Well, and you know, Andrew, from many of our our past conversations, I've started learning a lot from you in terms of, you know, the the focus and the goal of one unit being around, you know, building communications, building teamwork. Um, before I jump on some more questions to really understand, you know, what you're leading and, and the work that, you know, one unit is achieving with the work that you all are doing, um, I want to explore your background a little bit more because um, on top of having your engineer background, um, your PMP credential, which I think is kind of one of those underutilized credentials in a lot of healthcare areas. Um, but you also started touching on your background in facilitation. And so I love uh, if you could share with our audience specifically the certification that um, that you achieved through facilitation and, and tell us about it and and you know highlight what that is because this one was brand new to me. Sure. So, um, I mean,
1: overall, I don't have a sort of master facilitator badge there. I think there's some programs out there that might give you something like that. My background comes from doing, you know, many years at Deloitte, helping our clients designing offsites and workshops for large groups of executives. Um, but I think what you're alluding to is a specific training facilitation, uh, a specific certification I have called Lego serious play. Uh, and so, you know, if you're a, uh, a healthcare leader out there looking for a fun way to mix things up with your team, uh, this might be interesting to you. So what LEGO Serious Play is, is it's a facilitation methodology to help people brainstorm and unpack ideas and solutions in a way they might not otherwise if you're just simply just kind of at. So if you have a group of, in front of you and you ask them to kind of think about what are their aspirations for the hospital or are their aspirations for quality improvement, you're gonna get some hands in the air and you're gonna get some ideas and you can put them on a flip chart and that's pretty good. Um, what Lego series play does is instead what you've got on the table in front of you is a whole bunch of Legos specifically chosen to be metaphorical, lots of great ways. And the instruction is just go ahead and start building, build something that represents, um, our aspiration, our aspiration as a quality, uh, department at this hospital, for instance, what's our aspiration. And you start grabbing pieces, and maybe there's a, a face with an eye, and the eye represents transparency. And then maybe there's a little tower that represents that we want to be the best in our community, the best in the city. And you start to build a little bit, and maybe there's some wheels to talk about you know, movement and change. I don't know. You, come, you, start, you start to add things, and you start to come up with reasons that they're there. And when everyone's done building, the facilitator goes around the room and says, what did you build? And tell me about it. And people begin to talk about these things like transparency and let's be the best and let's you know, embrace change. And the kinds of ideas you get out of that will often be a lot stronger and a lot more, uh, with a lot more variety than the kinds of ideas you would have just gotten by having people raise their hands. So that's Lego series play. You can do that kind of principle, that kind of sort of expansive thinking with lots of different uh, uh, types of uh, you know, approaches. Uh, Legos happen to be a good one. And one nice advantage of being a lego series play facilitator is that you have a a case full of legos in the back of your closet and you know if you're really kind of bored you can always break that out and start playing with legos that's perfect
0: well for
1: for not that i do that
0: or anything well i was going to say for guys like us with young kids it helps but (laughs) um you know again I, i appreciate kind of learning more about that and also getting the chance to share that with our audience because so much of what we do for training preparation is very technical, very stodgy, Lean Six Sigma uh, data and analytics, um, even PMP, like I mentioned earlier with it also within your background. Um, but what you just described there falls into that world of creative problem solving, which um, is huge. It's one of those things I've learned. I had a chance to work with a coach around some of that a few years back, and um, it, it just sticks with you for whatever reason, it really works. So I'm glad to highlight that. Um,
1: awesome, and I would just add, uh, I'm always happy to jump on the phone with anyone and talk about how to make uh, a brainstorming session or anything like that more interactive and fun. Um, that's no, no charge for that. Uh, Andrew.Stein at OneUnit.com. Uh, I, I do that a lot with a lot of you know friends and colleagues. So if you're looking for new ideas to how to bring to, to, bring to a meeting, uh please let me know uh, us facilitators
0: we love to talk about this stuff all right well i was going to say we might have to get you back on the podcast for a uh, kind of a master class on on fun facilitation all right perfect so andrew let me let me move you to the next question because i really want to get more into the work that you all are doing um within one unit so my my understanding of one unit is you know actually a, a qi project that's successful enough to be turned into a company Um, that's something I don't think we've talked a lot about through our podcast here. So we'd love if you could share, you know, where, where did one unit come from? And then we'll, we'll kind of dig deeper around some of those.
1: Absolutely. So I think that's a good way to frame it. Uh, A QI project that, what, that worked well enough to turn into a company. Um, our insights began in 2010, uh, here at at Emory University, at Emory University Hospital here in Atlanta on unit 6G, 24 bed medical unit. Um, so the nurses and physicians were given the autonomy and the, and the instruction by hospital leadership to just try to reinvent care. And you know, 6U was a typical medical unit. So hospital-acquired infections and hospital mortality were higher than they should have been. Fragmented care, uncoordinated, you know, some missed signals, just opportunity to improve. And you know, staff of the unit—that's highly trained clinical staff at Emory, you know, of nurses and physicians and everyone else—and so they're asking themselves if it's not our skills, then what's going wrong? Like, what's the problem here? Uh, So they began to try a bunch of stuff and to keep a long story a little shorter, uh, the thing that worked better than anything else was interdisciplinary rounds, IDRs. And for those on the podcast who might not know what IDRs are, basically what that means is, instead of most typical units, you've got a nurse, uh, he or she is rounding throughout the day, sometimes up to hourly, Uh, physician will come by in the morning and, you know, maybe do a physical exam and, you know, he or she does their rounds in the morning. Um, uh, an interdisciplinary round is the nurse and physician rounding together, uh, usually at the bedside. But, you know, some people call IDRs the thing that happens when a physician and a charge nurse are at the nurse's station running the list together. So some people call that IDRs as well. So this unit uh, began to you know, notice that IDRs work better than anything else. But b- bringing people to the bedside just wasn't enough. People were talking too long, you know, 15 minutes per patient, hard to coordinate, where's the nurse, where's the doctor. And so out of that came cyber, S-I-B-R, Structured Interdisciplinary Bedside Rounds. And what cyber is, it's a six point communication protocol, who says what in what order. And it's illustrated as a diagram, everyone knows exactly their role. Um, and so a core insight It's just that structure matters a lot. You know, something as complex as interdisciplinary rounds requires this shared mental model of knowing who says what and when in what sequence. Uh, And there's a lot of information exchange, but cyber will take only about three minutes. And so here's what it feels like. Uh, So you're at the nurse's station, Jarvis, and you're looking at the charge nurse, a bedside nurse, a unit-based physician or a geographically oriented physician, uh, a social worker or care manager, and a pharmacist, whole care team is there. And the charge nurse, it's 1030 or 11 o'clock, let's say it's 11 o'clock, the start of cyber hour. And at 11 o'clock, the charge nurse says, okay, let's go into room 212. And they knock on the door and the physician says, Mrs. Garcia, can we come in and do our team rounds? And the whole team walks in and sets up around the bedside. The physician kicks it off with, uh, here's your hospital course. I've talked to the cardiologist, here are your lab results. Um, Let's hear from your nurse. The bedside nurse steps up and talks about overnight events vital signs, inputs, outputs, and then goes through a whole quality safety checklist. And in that quality safety checklist are all the things that you would normally care about. Um, glycemic control, VTE prophylaxis, Foley's, uh, the usual QI uh, list of stuff. Um, the, over to the pharmacist to talk about medication reconciliation and let's search an IV to PO. Social worker, hey, Mrs. Garcia, you came to us from home where you're living alone, but it looks like you're gonna need some more support after, after the hospital. So we're looking at some skilled nursing facilities. I'll be, back. I'll be by back later to look at the options with you. And the physician wraps it all up with a plan for care and a, an estimated date of discharge. And then thank, everyone thanks them. You know, thank you so much Mrs. Garcia for, for letting us take care of you. The team walks out and walks into the next room. That whole process that took me about three minutes to explain also just takes three minutes for the team to do. So that whole process is about three to four minutes, very structured, highly efficient. Everyone knows exactly who says what. That team then goes out and does it about 11, 12 more times over the course of the next hour. So 12, 13, 14 cybers in an hour. And it turns out when you do that, a lot of other things get better. Uh, On the clinical side, mortality goes down, unexpected deaths go to basically to zero. the all the normal qi outcomes get better so vte prophylaxis compliance skin integrity medication incidents foley days central line days we've seen a 30 percent decrease in falls uh, and then all the other parts of the quadruple aim get better too so patient satisfaction scores go way up lengthless day and readmissions get better staff and physician um, and so it's this convergent thing that just kind of makes everything else better uh, so that's cyber and it wasn't, uh, when it's done well, it's great and it does all those things. But when Jason started being asked by hospitals back in 2012 to come and talk to their nurses and physicians about it, it didn't transplant well, right, that the, the it didn't take. And, and so, you know, after a little bit of time, he's like, this is, this is silly. I can't, I need an organization behind me to do this. So he founded one unit back in 2014, 2015 uh, to found this. So the, the company has been going on for seven years, but the discipline of this has been going on for 11 years and more. Um, And ever since then, our goal has been to solve this thing called cyber and what are all the things that can get in the way and then what are some ways that we mitigate those things. And so at this point in our journey, we've got, we know all the challenges, We know, all the different things to do and address those challenges and then cyber becomes this thing that becomes a platform for everything else. Mm -hmm. Um, We've worked with hundreds of different units around the world. Australia, Canada, the US. Uh, and this is what we do. We're not really, we're, you know, a social mission, we're a social enterprise. We're doing this in order to make care better in hospitals. Uh, most of us are hospital professionals, nurses, physicians, allied health professionals. And so we take what we do, we've do. we worked on our units and have learned at other units and we bring them to new hospitals. Uh, and that's great. You know, it's amazing job for me because uh, I love, you know, my passion is helping people be their best at work. And so uh, every day I get to think about, how do I help the physicians and nurses and allied health professionals who take care of our patients in our hospitals? How do I help them uh, be on the same page and you know, feel like their individual burden has been reduced, but then
0: collectively they're able to do more? Well, and the the cool connecting piece, because Andrew, you know, you and I have had a couple of conversations since we have connected. I don't know, maybe in the last two or three months now. Um, I mean, just the the fact that you know, you all are. An official, you know, organization. You're working with clients, but you're still you. You said it. You know, you're still in that seven year zone, which still kind of makes you a young business. So I love, you know, if you can maybe tell us about some of the failures and successes. Uh, maybe you know, talk about the successes first. Um, what's been the biggest success, and what are some of the results that you've seen from those?
1: Yeah. So I was talking with the CNO of a health system here in the southeast. Uh, a couple weeks ago, and she was asking me what we do. And she's one of those veteran CNOs. She's been doing this for 40 years, very low key, just the facts. She's seen it all, right? We kind of know that type. They're great. Um, And, you know, thousands of vendors are trying to get her attention every year. But she wanted to hear from us, which is a compliment. Uh, During my spiel, which I, you know, let's say 15 minutes of describing what we do, kind of like I did with you, uh, and it went into some more detail. There were two times in that conversation where she went, whoa. I got two woes out of her. Which is more two more than i expected um so i'm going to call those our successes the first one is around nurses first bedside handover so nurses first is our program for nurses to kind of get them uh to give them the, the interdisciplinary rounds readiness that they need uh, if you're you know just to get a little bit of background here if you're a day shift nurse and you're walking into cyber at 10:30 in the morning uh, and you're being expected to you know basically give report on your patient to the physician and the rest of the team there's a bunch of primary data inputs that you need to be able to do that successfully. Uh, and so it's a big difference about whether you're spending your morning getting those or whether those are fully handed over to you from the previous shift at let's say 7 a.m. That's when change the shift is. Um, so the nurses on our units came up with a structured bedside handover uh, in order to make sure that those handovers went as well as possible and they could walk into cyber as fully prepared as possible, which also has the advantage of giving nurses a lot of practice presenting. So that structured handover for hospitals who haven't already invested in a structured handover, which some hospitals have, some have not. Uh, those who have not, uh, we are able to kind of lay that in. And when I described a story to her, I was like, we helped a hospital in the Southeast launch on seven units in one week. And that was the woe. She was like, wait, you can just do this across the hospital in, on seven units in a week? And say, so, yes, because it's the same process, the training's efficient, the, 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 the structure makes sense to nurses, designed by nurses for nurses. Um, it was really that easy. And then they're up and running. So that, that was the first, woe well, that's been a success for us being able to kind of lay that in and solve what has been kind of this intractable problem around uh, variable shift report and variable communication for nurses in a pretty streamlined, uh, you know, easy button kind of way. The other woe we got from her was around performance tracking uh, and performance visibility for hospitalists. So I talked about cyber uh, and enrolled the, the charge nurse. One thing the charge nurse needs to do is kind of to schedule cyber. So which nurses are going in which order? Nurse A goes for th- her three or four or five patients. Nurse B goes for their five patients. And then making sure the nurses are never, you know, you know for their 15 or 20 minutes, they're there, but then they can get back to doing uh, their work because they're busy. Um, so the charge nurse is scheduling nurses. They use something called a cyber flight plan. We call it a flight plan to sort of schedule the nurses. It turns out all the data on the flight plan about which nurses go in is also all the data you need to track cyber. How much cyber was there? How many times did we get to the bedside? How many times was a family member present? Which turns out to be a very useful statistic. And then what was the quality of cyber? And I don't know of any other instance where anyone has been able to track the quantity and quality of IDRs. And so what it means is like literally after cyber, the charge nurse takes out her camera, opens up our app, takes a picture of the flight plan. We use optical character recognition to extract the text and boom, we've got digitized data about how cyber happened that day in that unit. If you've got cyber on multiple units, on multiple hospitals, you can have a hospital-wide report, system-level reports, daily, weekly, monthly, quarter, you know, anything you can do with data visualization, you can do with this data. Now. What's useful about that? Why was, why was the CNO giving me a whoa? She said, whoa, because I said, well, what we can do with that is we now have individual scorecards for physicians. We know that physician A was getting to the bedside 80, 90% of the time, and they're doing 12 or 14 cybers a day. That's great, that's excellent, way to go. I know oh, by the way, the quality of the cyber was very good as evaluated by the charge nurse. Now then the other physician comes on, he's getting to the bedside half the time. He's uh, doing only six cybers a day. And the cybers are poorly rated, right? He's not activating the team around the plan of care and around the plan of discharge. Um, and now you've got something you may not have had before which is individual physician level visibility about bedside performance. Individual visib- visibility and individual physician bedside performance. Um, and the, the goal here is not to be a gotcha on physicians. Every, every hospital physician that's out there is doing their best job, but they may not recognize that they are a bit different than their peers in one measure or another. There isn't really a great mechanism out there to, for hospitalists to compare themselves against peers. And suddenly they get a, they can see a private scorecard, they can see how they relate to their peers. And usually that's enough, right? That's, oh, I didn't realize I was an outlier. And so now we're giving that feedback. And you know, what would happen if you didn't have that? Well, every time that physician rotates on, the nurse is like, oh shoot, it's that guy. He doesn't do cyber. He's not really doing this with us. He's wasting her time. Now he's got that data. He's he's changing his behavior, and that's no longer an issue. So it's no longer no longer a dissatisfier for nurses, and patients are getting their best care. So that was the second woe uh, is we figured out. I think something that hasn't existed before, which is this individual performance uh, transparency, which is pretty exciting.
0: Well, and let me let me go off script a little bit and and kind of tack on a little bit of an add on question because those successes are are huge and, at least from my experience, Andrew, you know getting teams to be consistent and standardized around their IDR process around their handoff process. um, is, for whatever reason, very, very difficult so um, any takeaways or any lessons learned or just anything you could share with our audience again connected to the change management that. Also, you know, any strategies that you all may have also put in place for that, because, um, again, these are things that happen every single day within a hospital, yet they, they are not consistent, from my experience, or they, there's just a lot of variation, which kills performance over time. So any, any takeaways from that point of view?
1: So your question is, is what change management are we, are we doing that makes this work? Yeah, so um, a few principles come to mind. Uh, one is shrinking the change, right? Try to make this as, as small of a difference as possible. Uh, one is that the best change is the change, uh, the best tools uh, and best processes are the ones that have been proven to actually work on a unit, right? Uh, the bedside handover form is designed by and for nurses and been tested by thousands of shifts on hundreds of units. So we know that nurses like it. Um, I'll, I'll give as a, as a counterexample uh, hourly rounding. Right. There's a lot of evidence that says hourly rounding is better, but it's not necessarily something nurses love. They feel like it's more work often. Uh, this is something that they actually, uh, that, that, you know, improves quality and it's something that they, they, tend to, they, hold on, they tend to hold on to once they get to know it. Um, you know, once you stop realizing you're, you're not getting any bad shift reports, it kind of becomes addictive. Um, on the physician side, you know, there's so much that goes into change in a hospital. So many stakeholders. Um, I think a biggest piece around that is just thinking through, you know, what happens when there is variation and how is the system gonna catch it? Um, so, you, you know, variation, obviously, as you mentioned, is kind of expected, right? There's no way, uh, think about this, in a 200 bed hospital with let's say eight units of 25 beds each, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, eight you know, med surge acute care units. You've got, um, you know, let's say 40 nurses on those eight units uh, on a given shift. And you've got like, let's say 10 hospitalists, right? My math is not great, but we're gonna round, round numbers. So 10 hospitalists, 40 nurses on a given 12 hour shift. And if those hospitalists are not geographically oriented, if their patient assignments are all over the hospital, you've probably got 100, 150 different teams, right? 150 different permutations of nurse physician combinations. That's crazy. There's, how do you standardize that? Where do you even start? And that's just one shift. Every shift, you get another 150 permutations of, of teams. And so, uh, you know, I think our answer is, 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 is several fold. One is we do try to do geographic assignment of the physicians, and it's kind of a prerequisite for cyber. Uh, you know, 80, 90% of a, of a hospitalist's patients should be on the same unit, should be on, a, on one unit. And that's where the hospitalist spends their time that week. Um, so that re- re- reduces a lot of the, 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 the team composition variation. Uh, two is you know teams who have a shared mental model of what good looks like. You know that cyber protocol, that six point protocol. Everyone knows exactly what to say. So no matter which nurse shows up that day, he or she is reporting the same data inputs in the same exact order every time. Um, you know the, uh, the social worker is reporting the same stuff. No matter what social worker come, comes to the unit that day, they're reporting the same stuff. Um, and so if you just break, break it down to that tactical level. Um, and it's tested, it's refined, and it's designed to sort of give physicians and everyone else exactly what they need in that moment. Uh, you know, it's a lot of experimentation, a lot of trial and error goes into this. So um, I think, and at the end of the day, I think the final principle I'd say is cyber only works if it's a highly valuable use of everyone's um, If the nurse talks too long, if the physician talks too long, if the social worker goes off on tangents about social determinants of health that aren't relevant to the care plan. Um, that is a quick dissatisfier, right? Cyber is now taking 10 minutes, 15 minutes a patient. That's not. And so how do you solve for that efficiency? Um, But if you can make it a highly valuable use of everyone's time because there's skills assessments and there's performance transparency and there's ways to sort of catch that variation when it happens, uh, suddenly it becomes like where the work is done. Uh, You know, we see, for instance, you talked about results earlier. One of my favorite results is that we see uh, we've seen pages for hospitalists go down by 60%. So, you know, physicians are just getting interrupted during the day less often. Fewer pages, fewer phone calls, fewer shoulder taps. And it turns out when you're a physician, that's a big dissatisfier when it's happening. And as soon as it goes away, it's like, oh my goodness, I, I'm not getting interrupted anymore. Like I can just, I'm I'm typing up my notes and I can finish typing up my notes and I don't have to remind myself where I was. Um, so, So creating that sort of payoff for a physician and for everyone else, that tends to make the change stick a bit more.
0: And I mean, uh, uh, again, that really came to mind because of from my experiences with IDR specifically, I've done an, a handful of different QI projects in the past related to those, but um, the takeaways as you shared from a change management standpoint, again, I love everything you're doing and uh, I hope that sticks very well with um, our audience, but um, let me let me kind of turn the table around just a little bit, Andrew. Um, we'd love if you could talk to us about maybe some of the failures or challenges that you all have had working with leaders around implementing rounding programs and, and you know, share with us, what did you learn? Yeah, I love
1: talking about failures. Um, I love hearing about others. The three, our failures are the ways that this goes poorly uh, fall into three buckets. How to train, how to coach and certify, and then how to manage and protect. So how to train, number one, That's, you know, training is not a new thing to anyone. And how do you give people the skills uh, and also the tools for cyber readiness? So when they show up to cyber, they're prepared, you know, as a nurse, as a social worker, care care manager, as a pharmacist, how do I make sure that I have what I need to walk into cyber prepared? Same for physicians. Um, the ways that goes wrong the failures we've had is early on we did not we didn't do any training or we didn't do sufficient training or we didn't uh give people enough specificity about what to work walk in with Um, so you know for instance telling uh teaching a care manager uh not just walk in with these data inputs but actually here's how you can present your information right talk about pre-admission details then talk about next side of care or whatever Um, how to coach and certify so that's number two, you know, when that's a failure, what that looks like is we did the training, but then we just kind of expected people to remember it, which, you know, no one who does adult learning anymore will tell you that's a good idea. Um, and so how do you actually do skills assessments and, and, and certifications to make sure that people are, can actually perform the skills in, in the flow of clinical care? Um, as our solution right now is, and we'll probably come up with other stuff too, is that we've got an app, it's a skills assessment, uh, literally, I can sort of you know, mark you down and, and sort of say like, uh, I, I can watch you do cyber and I can show you on, a, on, a, on, a, on my phone screen how many of the high performance behaviors you did well. If you pass, great. If not, then you get a chance to you know, get that objective private feedback and go again in the next cyber. Uh, and so that's nice. We're not asking anyone to be a coach. Many people don't sort of have the natural skills to be a good a coach. You're just asking people to kind of fill out an app and then share the results live. Uh, and then the last one is how to manage. Um, so that's uh, accountability. Uh, I talked about the performance transparency piece about physicians. I you know, Open question you might have is like, well, okay, so uh, physicians, physicians getting their scorecard, they're seeing their stats, but they're not changing their behavior. What happens then? And uh, this is where a lot of hospitals tend not to ask themselves the question of IDR. Is like, well, if you do have a physician who's not kind of bringing themselves, to, you know, their full selves into cyber or, or into IDRs, what do you do about it? Whose job is it to talk to them? Is it the nurse manager's job? Well, that doesn't make sense. Nurses shouldn't be having those performance conversations with physicians. Is it the CMO's job? No. Is it the hospitalist leads job? Maybe, but that's like, you know, how how would you scale that across a hospital? Have a hospitalist lead, watch all their patients? Not quite. Our solution to that is unit medical directors. You know, a physician, nurse, co-lead, a dyad that's leading the unit who's accountable for outcomes on the unit. And so now, uh, you know, if you have a nurse manager on a unit, why not have a physician manager, a physician, medical director on a unit? And what that does is it creates uh, that sort of unit level accountability so that when people come on the unit, come on the cyber unit, uh, this is, these are expectations. And if you're not meeting those expectations, like, you know, hey, I'll grab coffee with you and I'll tell you a little bit about what's going on and why we're trying to do this. And, you know, uh, so maybe share, show you your, your stats and uh, maybe next time you're, you're going to think twice uh, before you sort of make an excuse about, uh, we can't go to the bedside today because they're sleeping. We can't go to the bedside today because it's an isolation patient. Well, let's go to the bedside anyway. Let's let's do the best we can. So um, you know, how to train, how to coach, how to manage, those are ways that we failed in the past. Uh, we think we've got some good solutions for that. We're still making those better uh, with every implementation we do. Um, but I think any QI project has those same challenges. How do you train people on the new skills? How do
0: you coach them and certify that they've got those skills? And then you, how do you manage performance rate? Very, very wonderfully stated there. Um, I'm curious to kind of dig in now a little bit based around your expertise for closing the gap in communications with healthcare teams. Um, Andrew, what would you say are three critical concepts or topics that healthcare leaders should have on their radars related to that?
1: Yeah, so the three we like to talk about, I don't know if these are the three best for healthcare leaders, but the three that we, like, that we know pretty well uh, are shared mental model, collaborative cross-checking, and then the value of geography versus continued. So shared mo- mental model, that's what the cyber diagram and the protocol is. That's the efficiency that comes when people know exactly who, you know, who does what. Uh, the airline industry is something people point to a lot. right? Cop- I, pilots in a cockpit, they, know, they have a very strong shared mental model of who's in charge of what and what to do in different situations. And we're kind of replicating that same, the same sort of cockpit shared mental model uh, at the bedside. Collaborative cross-checking, uh, that's all about increasing the reliability of care that's being delivered by a factor of ten. Uh, you know, it's 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 you know why nurses do double checks before they give high risk drugs. Uh, that's already happening in hospitals today in lots of different ways. But now we're activating it in very kind of way, so that the you know the pharmacist is like, hey, by the way, um, we uh, we took the we, we took we, we took the you know Dr. Ms. Garcia, we 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 stopped your VTE prophylaxis. You know, we stopped those little shots in the belly. Uh, a couple of days ago, but you know, if, if, Dr, if Dr. Jones thinks it's a good idea, I think we might want to you know, get, get that going again. Uh, and Dr. Jones is like, oh yeah, I totally missed that. Uh, yes, please, please, you know, that's a, yes, please put that order in. Uh, so that, you know, there's a, these little moments when at cyber, uh, everyone can hold everyone else accountable. Uh, last example uh, communica- is that the, 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 the tension between geography and continuity. Uh, if you ask a, a, an average hospitalist what's more important uh, they'll tend to say continuity. They'll tend to say that if my patient moves from a, one unit to another, uh, I want to make sure to stay with that patient because I don't want to sort of interrupt their care. And you know, there's a lot of reasons for that, and there's a lot of good reasons for that. We find that when we when you're trying to put in place uh, unit-based teams, ge- geographically oriented physician teams, the geography trumps continuity. Um, having everyone on the having as a physician having all my patients on a unit or 80, 90 percent of my patients on a single unit there are uh, so many uh, gains from that, so many advantages and benefits from that, that, uh, that outweigh the otherwise strong arguments around continuity. So if my patient moves from one unit to another, it's just understood in that hospitalist group, uh, yes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose that patient and that's, that's okay and that's part of the model. And even though that's a little harder on me or maybe a lot harder on me because uh, for lots of reasons, uh, I'm, I'm okay with that because I know that the model requires me to sort of be geographically geographically oriented.
0: All right, perfect. So you have the shared mental models, the collaborative cross-checking, geographical uh, continuity, but I think, you know, well, kind of going to my head, right? So a lot of our listeners, and we've got a lot of uh, physicians and nursing leaders that plug in with the podcast, but also um, obviously a lot of quality people. So I guess as I hear like collaborative cross-checking, Um, Let's say I'm a quality person in a hospital that's, you know, that's working and and has hardwired the cyber process within our med surge units. How how would my job be impacted or how would my job be different if that was going on? Yeah,
1: so I think it's a really, this is my favorite, uh, one of my favorite things to think about is how would the discipline of QI be different if cyber was just the substrate across the hospital, if it was the operating system in the hospital? Um, you know, Jarvis, let me, let me ask you a question in in response. How do you like to measure if a QI project has been successful? What do you like to look at?
0: Well, outcomes directly going to the patient
1: or the customer first. Okay. Uh, Any other kind of big, big things come to mind in addition to like quantity of outcomes?
0: Yeah. From there um, with the teams doing the work, you know, the impact on them, did it save them time? Did it save them Effort, resources, money, supplies, things of that nature. Um, and of course, I'm an engineer. So anything I can tack back on to dollars or hardcore savings, um, you know, those are, those are the things I'm looking for. Yeah, um, that's a great
1: answer. I, when I think about QI as someone who actually is not trained in QI, so that's, this is the disclaimer, I'm, I think about four metrics, uh, delta, breadth, scale, and durability. So for me, delta is change. How much? How much improvement? Change was there in the measure. Breadth is how many clinical outcomes did you nudge? So was it just a VTE prophylaxis intervention, or did you actually hit several clinical outcomes and improve patient satisfaction and improve length of stay? Right. That's a breadth. Uh, so delta breadth scale is how many uh, patients, uh, or how easy is it? At, to uh, yeah, how many patients are you hitting with it, right? And so it's one thing to do it for one patient or one unit. It's another thing to do it for a whole hospital or a whole health system. And then durability is, what's the sustainability of this thing? How easy is it to sustain? My experience, and this is limited, is that most QI projects, most interventions tend to fail at least one of those. You know, if you, change, if you fail on the Delta, then there's not a whole lot of improvement. Maybe about a lot of things, but just not that much improvement. If you fail on breadth, you're really, really focused on one measure, but not focused on enough on a bunch of different measures, which is really where the where the big outcomes come from. Uh, if you fail on scale, you're not really thinking about how you bring it from a unit to a hospital, right? It's really, unit level interventions are relatively easy compared to hospital level interventions, which are, uh, are differentially hard, I should say. And then durability is that fourth one. If that fails, it's because you did a great idea uh, you have a great idea, we made a big change and a lot of outcomes for a lot of patients, but it just didn't last. You just couldn't keep it going. And so for us, we measure our success across those four, delta, breadth, scale, and durability. Um, I think that it, you know, it's much harder than it is in a factory, right? Lean Six Sigma comes from that factory environment. Uh, you know, the Toyota production system, right? There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a production line and people can pull the cord and stop the line and improve something and boom, start the line and keep going. Um, that works well because you have a consistent substrate already, right? The production system itself is the consistent platform and improvements can be made on top of it. Most hospitals don't have the consistent substrate. So it's really hard to create a system uh, change that's durable and it's gonna, you know, that, that no matter what team comes on shift, comes on they can cons- um, cyber to me is that substrate. It's that operating system. And so imagine a hospital where every day at 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. on every unit the teams are rounding on the patients together in cyber, and you've got that quality safety checklist embedded in the flow of clinical care. What could you do with that? Well, let's say there's, um, you know, let's say there's a new quality safety indicator that everyone kind of agrees. Let's let's call it nutrition, right? There's a lot of good evidence that um, patients, let's say, who eat 50% more than 50% on their plate do better than patients who don't, or patients who don't eat more than 50% of their plate, uh, they probably need a little bit more, uh, you know, something m- might be going on there, right? Maybe we do need a tr- nutrition consult, or maybe there's something else going on we need to look at. But that's a really interesting metric for, for you know, to look at. Um, let's say you as a QI person decide that you wanna make sure that everyone who's not eating more than 50% of their plate, uh, something's being done there, right? Maybe it's, uh, let's, let's change the, the let's get a nutritionist in, let's do something, but you know, there's something to be done there. How would you roll that out in a non-cyber world? It's, you know, I could, we could talk for a long time about different ways to do it. In a cyber world, suddenly you can embed that in on the cyber checklist. You know, maybe there is a spot on the whiteboard for the person who's taking away the plate to indicate whether 50% or more. And then maybe during cyber, um, there's a moment in time when the nurse kind of points out, by the way, uh, Mrs. Jones did not eat more than 50 5% of her meal, and so the physician orders uh, X or Y or Z to kind of, you know, let's let's get on that. Uh, that is actually what exactly what happened at a hospital in Canada that we worked with. The um, they took that they, that was the intervention they wanted to do. They used cyber to do it, and they saw some really great outcomes for it. And it was very easy for them to do because they had cyber as an operating system. So I think that this is all to say that I think cyber changes what the work of QI can be. Uh, Instead of projects, instead of kind of chasing around data, suddenly you have the substrate. And when you have a new thing that you want to do, it's about how do we embed that in cyber? And then how do we scale that across the hospital? And both of those things become, I'd say, 10x easier with cyber in place than
0: without. One, it's key to distinguish, you know, you you described um, earlier, you know, this was all a QI project essentially turned into a business opportunity. But um, I love the way you really. Denoted it there it's an operating system right and so that starts to set the foundation um, that standard approach that you can then build on and we all know from the QI side of it. Um, if there are no standards in place you'll never have performance improvements so um, yeah. way you you've set that up, but then also the those scales that you guys are working off of your delta your breadth, your scale your durability, um, I think that's a very solid checklist of ways to think through how you're making your improvements. So I know you all are obviously using it within your business. But, you know, again, for our listeners, if you're not thinking about how it's almost like a maturity scale for the improvement factors that you're working through. And so for our listeners, I mean, take it and steal that mindset, apply it to what you're doing, but definitely plug in with Andrew, um, you know, if you have any questions on what that starts to look like as well. So um, I love it. I would. Oh, yep. Um, I mean, I think, I thank you for that, for the
1: endorsement. I think if I'm, if I'm a, a VP of quality or, or someone on their team and I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, oh, like Andrew, that sounds great, but I don't know where to start. Like, I, I can't just wave a magic wand. I'd have to get everyone on board. Um, so I think, you know, I'll, I'll offer some, some, some ideas there because it, otherwise you can sort of, you know, Goes one in, in one ear, one area, like oh, that's a great idea, but I could never do that, right? I can never lose twenty pounds. Like that's not that's someone else. What's well? That's someone else to do. Um, I think the what I've seen successful is socializing these ideas with in in, in your own organization. Um, so, you know, the tr- traditional way that this gets approved is that eventually the CNO and the CMO agree that this needs to happen. It has to be a nurse physician partnership because we've got nurse physician partnership at the bedside. We've also got nurse physician partnership at the unit. And then we also need that nurse physician leadership at the hospital level or at the health system level. Um, how do you get there? Well, um, I think oftentimes it's helpful to work through the nursing organization. Uh, nursing is usually uh, a bigger fan of this out of the bat. Uh, if you ask a CNO or, or, or someone on their team, uh, you know, is this interesting to you? Usually the answer is, I mean, uh, you know, my nurses know exactly uh, when they're gonna see the physician and they're recognized for their expertise at the bedside and uh, they get to tell their 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 patients exactly when the physician's gonna be by. Uh yeah, of course, where do I sign up? This is great for my nurses. So nursing is a big is is an early, early champion. Uh I would say start with the nursing side of the organization, begin to socialize these ideas. And then and then at some point, you know, if you want to invite us in, um, you know, we can, we, you know, we our physicians can talk to your physicians, and you know, physicians like to be talked to by other physicians. And so, what that looks like is answering all the questions that physicians tend to have around uh, geographic cohorting and patient assignments. And is this more work? And how do I, fit, you know, am I rounding my patients twice? And if so, why? Uh, you know, lots of good questions, a lot of meaty questions uh, that physicians kind of, you know, will, will be asking and should be asking uh, about anything like this. Um, but you know, I'd say the first step. Uh, if you socialize it within the nursing side of the organization, uh, oftentimes there's 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 initial uh, excitement there. All
0: right, perfect. And I'm I'm glad you shared that. Um, that I think again is just that good additional piece that will solidify a lot of this. And I, I'm so you know just thankful that we're talking about that focus for rounding. You know advancing beyond just the IDR mindset but to the cyber program type of mindset. Um, let me let me circle back around a little bit on you, Andrew. Um, just again, we we started talking about your background with facilitation. Um, so I will say for me, I love doing projects, but it's really the facilitation piece that is the fun, the working with the teams being personable, getting them riled up and, you know, improving the work that they're leading. Um, just curious for you, what's what's a favorite go-to tool or technique that you may lead um, that, you know, when you're, when you're leading facilitation events or team facilitation, you know, episodes? Yeah, uh, so I'll go
1: back to my quote, my favorite leadership quote from earlier, a guiding hand that beckons the way. Uh, you know, Jarvis, I know you have small kids like I do, mine are three and five. Um, and, you know, the, the thing you do with a kid is, you don't say, will you put on your shoes? You ask, which shoe do you wanna put on first? Yeah, the, the framing, the, the presupposition in the frame uh, creates, uh, you know, action. Um, and you know, you know, just as parenting makes you better at your job, I think that's, that's facilitation at work, right? You've, you've created the context to the conditions for, for movement and, and forward forward momentum. So the facilitation technique I would share is asking how can I, I asked myself, how can I guide this group to where they need to go? How can I beckon the way? How can I bring them along? What, ex, what sort of experiences do they need to get them from A to B? So very quick story to, to illustrate this. Uh, I was at Deloitte and we were doing an offsite for a group of executives uh, for Anthem. So, you know, working with the enemy. And uh, so the Deloitte team, we know we needed them to be think a lot more ambitiously about kind of their strategic plan for the next five years and how they would take care of the health of their members. Um, so we knew that if we just kind of did a, a traditional thing or let's think about your business, let's brainstorm, the ideas that would come out of that would not be particularly innovative or creative and we knew that they could be you know, thinking more. So we designed this three-day experience for them. And the first thing we knew we needed to do was get them out of their, I don't say comfort zone, but at least um, I have a mentor who used to say, uh, it's not about thinking outside the box, it's about thinking inside of different boxes. And so we had some new boxes for them to think inside uh, we start off by validating where they are, but then we started on the first night over dinner, uh, we brought in a speaker to talk about emerging technology and disruptive technology and kind of where trends are going. And that kind of opened the aperture of what they were thinking about. Uh, just help them realize that the world is changing around them. So day De- two is workshop, unifying workshop, uh, a unifying framework for thinking about their problems, working on new operating models, exploring new ideas, but they're already predisposed to think more creatively than they would have otherwise. And then day three was closure, alignment, and then into each other. And so by doing it that way, by kind of starting off, uh, getting them out of their comfort zone, literally going off-site uh, to a new environment and then sort of mentally stretching their brains, uh, we were able to get to a much better place at the end. Uh, we did that because we started with the end in mind and worked backwards. Okay, what would it take for them to get to this really great final spot. And then what experiences do we need to put in place along the way. Well, we need to get them off site. Well, we need to have a really engaging you know, speaker about disruptive technology uh, early on. Um, I think the other lesson there is going outside your discipline, you know, I think hospitals. Uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, hospital professionals, you, we, we tend to be inward focused on our hospital, on our system. Yeah, sure, we go to conferences, conferences to see what's new, but there's a lot of lessons. I think you and I talked about this, or at least I've heard you talk about it, about finding lessons outside your discipline. Um, and especially if you've got something that, but you know, it, it doesn't have to be outside the hospital discipline. If you see something that's working, if there's proof of something working across multiple hospitals, I would say that the burden of proof is on why wouldn't we do that instead of why would we do that? So if, if you see something working at multiple hospitals and it's working well, the burden of proof shifts from why wouldn't we do that, and I think unfortunately I see the tendency for for some for some leaders might be to 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 uh, be anchored in the in the saw process of why would we instead of why wouldn't we? Uh, so bias for action, a bias for taking things elsewhere, and you know. Uh, Shamelessly
0: copying them. Yeah, we. Um, I, I grew up learning the uh, model called case copy and steal everything. <laughs> so, absolutely, and if it comes from a different industry, it's free game all the way around. Um, and then a, a past team member I used to work with, uh, when we got on our kicks about facilitation, we'd. Um, she taught me a term called facipulation, which was part facilitate, part manipulate. So when you were talking about the kids. I was like, Andrew, man, I just facipulate my kids. I, I manipulate them into thinking what I want them to think. <laughs> um, but no, you know, facilitation, those are honestly the things, the skills that save my butt more than anything as a quality leader. Learning the technical tools of Lean Six Sigma project management, that's one thing, but learning how to partner with your teams to lead them to guide, be that guiding hand, like you described.
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
0: That's a whole nother skill set. So I love, you know, everything you shared with those, but um, Andrew, I'm going to move you into a part of our show now that we call our two minute drills, kind of my take of a rapid fire Q and a, but always love to do a quick check. Just make sure you're ready to rock and roll before we uh, kind of fire through the rest of these questions. Let's go. All right, perfect. So Andrew, the next question I have for you is something of a two-parter, where I love for you to first tell our quality people something about your role that inspires you to do your best, then also share with us how do you inspire other professionals.
1: Uh, well, second part is easy storytelling. Um, I mean, it's not a, a particularly novel thing to say, but um, you know, I've tried even, even in our conversation to tell a lot of stories. You know, this is a story of cyber. This is you know a story of what a what a pharmacist might say. Um, and I feel like, you know, something about the brain, storytelling works well. Um, and then, you know, we've been telling stories to each other, to, to each other as humans for, you know, eons, right? Uh, what inspires me to do my best? I mean, honestly, it goes back to something I said earlier. There's no more complex organization than a hospital and perhaps nothing more complex within a hospital than, 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 than changing how the team, the interdisciplinary care team interacts at the bedside and telling physicians and nurses what to do differently. And so this feels like the hardest part of the hardest type of you know, thing out there. And as an engineer, that's particularly exciting to me. Um, I like hard problems. And, and, and one advantage of hard problems is that when you solve them, there's usually disproportionate gains uh, to,
0: to be had, which is at least that's been our experience. Um, what is the best piece of career advice that you've ever received?
1: I did not receive this advice personally. Uh, it's from Steve Martin. Uh, he's got a great quote, be so good, they can't ignore you. That was his advice for other stand-up comics uh, when they say, well, you know, what advice do you have? He said, be so good. They can't ignore you. Uh,
0: I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. I love it. And at least he's a legend. I mean, if you got to take advice from anyone um, next question I have for you, um, what would you consider to be three key attributes of being a team oriented healthcare leader?
1: Yeah. Um, three mindsets or principles that I, that I, that I love. Um, one is, you know, uh, I guess you call it Gemba, right? Walking the words, listening to frontline staff. Uh, just, uh, I've heard it said, forgive the, here comes a four-letter word, the people who are in the shit know their way out of the shit. Um, so that's, I like that. Uh, number two, uh, the difference between teamwork and group work. So I had the experience of being in grad school and being on a team, in, quote, unquote, but like, it wasn't really a team. It was just four or five MBA students kind of put together and told to do assignments together. And as soon as, I, at some point I realized like this is not a good team. Like there's no one in charge. There's no accountability. People are freeloading. And, 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 and so near the end of the semester, I, you know, we, I got us to try to kind of reorganize ourselves a little bit and kind of be an actual team in some ways. Um, but it's funny how often we have group work, not teamwork, right? We have many quote unquote teams in the hospital um, but a lot of times it's more just groups. And so, uh, you know, what does actual teamwork look like? Well, actual teamwork, you can look at the, um, some of the best sports teams in history to look at great teamwork, uh, the example of the, um, the, the, you know, that one year that the, uh, the U S basketball team went to the Olympics and actually did not do well because it was a bunch of all-stars, but they hadn't practiced together as a team, really. So, you know, group work does not equal teamwork. Um, the last thing is, I don't know much about this as a team-oriented healthcare leader, but I think there's a big difference between uh, descriptive and prescriptive thinking. Uh, descriptive thinking is a restaurant review. Prescriptive thinking is the recipe. You know, people often look at how something is, and then, then they try to copy what that is, right? But if you look at, you, know, you, you, you wouldn't try to cook a meal from a restaurant review. Um, uh, you know, it's, it, it, just because it's described that way doesn't mean you know what ingredients go into it. And so, uh, you know, I think we have a uh, cognitive bias that we tend to over-index on descriptive thinking or, you know, think if we're watching something and we can see how it works, we can kind of do it the same way. Uh, but prescriptive thinking is, uh, here's how I do it as an expert. And here's the recipe and here's the step-by-step check. Um, I think, uh, trying to connect that to Teams. No, I can't connect that to Teams. I'm just going to take a mulligan on that one.
0: That was just a, th- a third thing that was not unconnected to Teams. All right. No, I, I love the concepts, <laughs> you know, regardless of the connectedness, love all yeah. of those concepts. Um, Andrew, if you could recommend a book to our quality people, what would it be and why?
1: There's a great book called Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. And uh, it's written by this, I think it's UCLA professor um, who basically a business professor and he didn't write a book for you know his whole career or at least not a popular book. And then he decided to put everything he knew in a single book. Um, good Strategy, Bad Strategy, as a basic framework about here's what strategy is. And there are lots of definitions of strategy out there but this one is one of my favorites. Strategy is three things, diagnosis, guiding policy and coherent action. Diagnosis is you know, clear eyed sense of what's going on. Guiding policy is how should we approach it, which we do. And then coherent action is a series of interrelated steps that all together you know, carry out the guiding policy. Um, the thing I like about the idea of coherent action is it's the opposite of point solutions. Uh, too often, I think, in, in organizations and in healthcare, we have point solutions. We have single in-time you know, solutions to things. When, you know, it's not the systems thinking that, you know, Jarvis, you and I have been trained on. So diagnosis, guiding policy, coherent action, uh, I like to kind of always come back to that, you know, check what I'm doing against. All right,
0: perfect. And next question I have for you. What's one piece of advice that you would give to healthcare organizations to help them better manage their operations and improve their outcomes? So I'm going to be
1: a little bit tricky here. I'm going to say, you know, your, your, your question asked about better managing operations and improving outcomes. I'm going to say that the words better and the words improve are themselves unhelpful words. Uh, and what I mean by that is better You can get away with a lot by claiming that something is better or that something doesn't improve. But better doesn't mean it's scalable. Better doesn't mean it's durable. Better doesn't mean that it's significantly better for every patient that walks through the door. There are a lot of mediocre ideas that don't get scale and uh, that still get and that don't last and get praised with words like better and improve and they don't really deserve it. So you know maybe there's a germ of a good idea, right? Like it's fine to try things, but uh, I would I would go back to. Those four concepts I mentioned earlier, durable, scalable, breadth, and, and the delta, the change. And, and you know, don't praise something because it's better or because it improves a thing. You, you know, always be asking, uh, can the scale, can it sustain itself, can we sustain it? Um, does it touch a lot of patients, not just a few? And then of course, is the delta there? Is it significant, right? And it may not be that the thing hits all four right away, but ideally that's the goal. You know, until it's there, eh, you know, is it better? I don't
0: know. is it worth the time? I don't know. Perfect. Love it. Um, Andrew, man, we are right there at the very last question for today. So for our closer, um, let's say that we're sitting here a year from now celebrating what a great year has been for you and your team over at One Unit. Um, Take a second and think about it, but what exactly did we achieve this year? And most importantly, how are we celebrating? You know, it's funny. I'm going to take a mulligan on that a little bit because the
1: pace of change in healthcare is so slow, and the you know we're we're on this five or ten year journey ourselves, you know figuring out perfecting this thing called cyber implementation. Um, and so in a year, I would expect that we'd be celebrating if we helped a few more hospitals, and if we could look at our implementation you know process and be like that's twenty percent more efficient and twenty percent more effective. And if we're you know I, my goal is to accrue those twenty percent gains every year. Cause you know, five years of 20% gains and you've doubled efficiency, you've d- doubled effectiveness. So, um, you know, if I, if I, I feel like I, if we can hit our stride, if every year we're kind of bringing those returns to bear uh, for ourselves and for the hospitals we work with and making a difference for them and making, you know, making what we do better. You know, it, it, in our vision to, to change the world, we can't just do three or five hospitals a year like we've been doing. We got to figure out a way to do 50 hospitals or 100 hospitals a year. And so, you know, I'm, I'm excited to kind of figure out what that looks like because, you know, such a change management lift, something that requires so much stakeholder engagement. What does 50 hospitals a year look like? You know, do we have to be at the scale of a, of a Huron or a Deloitte to do that? Or is there something more efficient? Is there something that software can do, something with artificial intelligence? Um, so I'm excited to sort of just kind of keep making progress and, and work with our partner hospitals to, to make it better and figure it out for them and figure it out for everyone else. If, you know, in a year, I, I can see 20% improvement in everything. Then I'm excited and I'm going to do it again next year.
0: Well, you know the the cool part about just kind of watching you answer that question. We we've had such a great conversation, but just seeing you transform into like the COO that you are for your organization, and just focus on you know that that mindset of growth, of scale, of you know pushing further so you could do more good across the industry was just really it it was a legit like transformation so I just want to call that out, Um, no matter what man I I hope you guys figure out how to crack that code because um, you're doing some good work. I'm impressed I've been impressed I really enjoyed all the conversations we've had up to now, um, Andrew so I can't wait a year from now to play this back over for you. And just you know, remind you of this moment here. But um, Andrew, I, I greatly appreciate it again. Before I let you go for it today, I'd love if you could share your you know your social media contacts or any other ways that our teams and our listeners can connect with you. Um, and then we'll officially sign off.
1: That sounds great. So I am on LinkedIn uh, as Andrew Stein, S-T-E-I-N, or Andrew K Stein. It might be easier to find me. Uh, middle initial K. Uh, you can also follow our company on LinkedIn, One Unit, numeral one U N I T, and if you email me at Andrew uh, at OneUnit.com, uh, I can set you up with a demo for of cyber for you and your colleagues. Uh, I can answer any questions you have about anything like this, or if you just want random advice, facilitation advice, you want Lego advice, uh, I, I'm always happy to meet new people who are interested in similar stuff. Uh, our websites oneunit.com again numeral one unIT.com lots of good resources on there more to come uh, we'll also be at the magnet conference in Atlanta in November so if you're going to be at magnet uh, stop by our booth it'll be in the back middle um, but yeah uh, hit me up at Andrew at oneunit.com uh, and I would love to you know uh, connect and, and and grab virtual coffee and and meet
0: and meet some of the Jarvis's awesome listeners all right perfect so Andrew um, again I hope Uh, A lot of folks hit you up just for a great conversation, but uh, definitely to learn more about you and the great work you guys are leading. Um, To our quality people everywhere, thank you all so much for listening and making us a part of your day. This is Jarvis and Andrew, and we're signing off. Quality people, thank you so much again for plugging in with today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please feel free to share it using the social media link posted in the notes below. I'd also be very grateful if you could subscribe, give us a rating and also share feedback on what additional value we can bring to you through this podcast. That helps a lot with our show rankings and also with getting this great content out to healthcare leaders around the world. And if you want to engage with me directly, then please connect with me on LinkedIn where I share additional resources, access to our QI community and much more. All right, quality people, thank you again, and I'll see you back here next week when I introduce you to another quality guest.